Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amuka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 41 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu. With me in studio have Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhuku and Figle Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, AU official says Africa is extremely vulnerable to terrorism. Community leaders condemn ethnic killings in Kenya and UN envoy says solutions to South Sudan crisis cannot be imposed from abroad. In economics, Africa is set for an oil and gas boom and in sports news, Springboks coach worry of the Wallabies. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Lesotho coalition parties are expected to address the Basutu nationals after holding talks in the capital, Maseru, yesterday to end the stalemate in the mountain kingdom. The talks were ordered by SADC following a two-day meeting held in South Africa's capital, Pretoria. The All-Basutu Convention, Lesotho Congress for Democracy and Basutu National Party say they are confident the talks will bring peace. Prime Minister Tom Tabane returned to Lesotho yesterday after he had fled to South Africa late on Friday when the army overran police headquarters in Maseru. Deputy Prime Minister and leader of the LCD, Muteja Metsing, says they will abide by the SADC agreement. All parties agreed that uh, Parliament will be opened as agreed. And we have also agreed on the timelines on when these things will be done. When I heard over the radio about a change of command, I did not believe that because we have not yet discussed this with the Prime Minister. So I think it is critical that this is too sensitive an issue, which I must first discuss with the Prime Minister. And I think let's give that process a chance because as the security of our people is important. The Somali government has ordered amnesty has offered rather amnesty to Al-Shabaab fighters following an airstrike allegedly targeting the group's leader. According to reports, the fighters can be reintegrated into society if they surrender over the next 45 days. 
The offer of amnesty comes after a U.S. airstrike that targeted Al-Shabaab leader Ahmed Abdugodane, whose fate remains unclear as U.S. and Somali officials assess the outcome of the attack. Somali forces backed by African Union troops last week launched an offensive on Al-Shabaab's last strongholds in southern Somalia, where the militants are believed to plot attacks across Somalia that have left scores dead this year. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry has met with Palestinian negotiators for talks on future relations with Israel. The talks come just days after Israel announced its biggest grab of Palestinian land since the 1980s. It was Kerry's first face-to-face talks with Palestinian negotiators since Washington found itself sidelined with, from the Gaza ceasefire talks in July. Kerry had also spoken on Tuesday over the phone with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu when he expressed his concern about new Israeli plans to confiscate some 400 hectares of land in the occupied West Bank for settlement building. The U.S. has called on Israel to reverse the decision. The United Nations has deployed demining experts to investigate the explosion that killed four peacekeepers and injured 15 others in Mali on Tuesday. An explosive device that detonated on a vehicle carrying UN peacekeepers was the latest in a series of attacks in Kidal region. Last week, there was repeated mortar fire against the camp of the UN mission in Mali. Nine peacekeepers were wounded in another attack by an improvised explosive device in the region. UN spokesperson in New York, Stefan Dujaric. The UN Mine Action Service, UNMAS, has deployed in the field for the investigation concerning the attack yesterday by an explosive device on a vehicle of the UN peacekeeping mission in the country, which killed four Chadian peacekeepers and wounded another 15, six of whom were wounded seriously. The wounded have been evacuated to Gao and some to Dakar in Senegal. The Secretary General condemned the attack, the latest in the series against UN personnel and contractors in the Kidal region in the past week. And finally, Malaysia Airlines has renamed a promotional campaign asking people what countries are on the bucket list to visit after acknowledging it was inappropriate given the two deadly disasters it has suffered this year. A bucket list is a term used to describe a list of activities that people want to do or places they want to see before they die. The airline says it has withdrawn the title. A Malaysia Airlines jet with 239 people on board went missing in March while en route to Beijing and no trace of it has been found. In July, a Malaysia Airlines jet was shot down over Ukraine, killing all 298 people on board. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, and it is exactly 8.07 Central African time on this Thursday, September the 4th, the 247th day of 2014, with exactly 118 days left in the year. Our top story, terrorism is a common enemy for the African Union and the United Nations, and the UN is strongly committed to stepping up its cooperation with the AU and its member states. That's the message that the UN Secretary General sent to the African Union Union 
Peace and Security Council Summit on terrorism held in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, on Tuesday. There is concern that terrorist groups such as the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda may be having dormant cells on the continent waiting for the right moment to strike. To find out more about the challenge of terrorism in Africa, UN Radio's Eluetiero Guevani spoke with Ambassador Francesco Madeira, the AU's chairperson special representative for counter-terrorism on the line from Cairo in Egypt. Unfortunately, our continent is extremely vulnerable. We have border posts with the inadequate personnel, inadequate equipment, border posts that are, to a great extent, unable to control false documents. All these allows for terrorists to cross the border and enter into our countries. We are equally vulnerable because extreme poverty amongst our population, issues of economic, social, and political governance, the issue of people's alienation, all these things are exploited by terrorists to pursue and advance their cause. We need to be able to face these things. But most importantly, in our case, we have to concentrate special attention on prevention. A prevention that needs to tackle the following aspects. We need to educate our populations as to what is international terrorism, what is domestic extremism, violent extremism, radicalization. We need to make sure that terrorists are not able to recruit in our countries and reinforce their violent ranks. Our governments must get prepared to avoid impede terrorist activities from taking place in our country. But sometimes this is not possible. In case these attacks take place, the government must be able to reduce and minimize the impact of these attacks by quickly moving to identify the perpetrators of these activities and arrest them and bring them to justice. Africa states that the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria has dormant cells in the continent. The same thing happens with uh, Al-Qaeda. Can you tell us more about that? Well, I cannot advance you solid evidence. What I can tell you is that I did effectively hear the information according to which these Islamic State individuals may have approached other extremist groups in North Africa to seek the possibility of uh, an alliance that can make them coordinate their activities and work together and recruit for Syria and for all those areas like uh, Iraq where they are active. That much, yes. But dormant cells, we hear about them everywhere. And in fact, in the case of Mali, in the case of uh, a number of countries in North Africa, that's how they start. They create dormant cells. And through those dormant cells, they open illegal mosques and madrasas. And from there, they start radicalizing, practicing an ideological narrative that is attractive to the poor, to the miserable, to the unprotected. And they exploit local grievances to craft their ideological narrative. And with that, they succeed in radicalizing a number of people. So we need to protect our people against those things. Our state must address these conditions 
that are normally exploited by terrorists in order to radicalize our populations and take them to commit acts of terrorism. How prepared is Africa to deal with this threat of terrorism? We need to work together. We need to coordinate better our action. We need to exchange information. We need to prepare our legal system to be in a position to handle and tackle all these issues in strict observance of the rule of law and respect of human rights. How are we prepared? We have weaknesses. We need equipment and the resources we have are not necessarily sufficient to give us adequate equipment. We need better equipment. We need resources. We need capacity to train more people and so on and so forth. But I must tell you, I have visited a number of African countries. I see that they are all very committed to fighting terrorism. Many of them have invested a lot of resources in the equipment that I'm talking about, in the training of their population, and in the preparation of counter-terrorism legislation, and so on and so forth. That was Ambassador Francesco Madeira, the AU's chairperson, special representative for counterterrorism, talking there to Eliotero Giovanni on the line from Cairo in Egypt. Ethnic fighting has left at least 20 people dead in Kenya's northeastern region near the country's border with Somalia. More than 2,000 others have fled their homes to escape possible attack. James Shimanyula reports. The ethnic fighting in Mandera and Wajiri counties in Kenya's northeastern region has resulted in the death of at least 20 people, with scores of others sustaining serious injuries. According to local government officials, the fighting was triggered by a quarrel between members of the Degodia and Gare ethnic groups over a piece of land which each group claims to own since time immemorial. Traditionally, the two groups are small-scale farmers and cattle keepers. Expressing the Kenya government's concern over the fighting between members of the two ethnic groups, Interior Minister Joseph Orelenko said, First of all, we are very disappointed about the situation in Mandera because uh, uh, as government, we here to see this situation. We have done huge deployment of uh, police officers and even other support services. But we still see the ugly head of uh, uh, clanism raising its uh, uh, head and creating uh, hatred, fight and even loss of lives between Putting the ethnic fighting in a proper perspective, especially in Mandera, one of the two troubled counties, Interior Minister Joseph Orelenku said. Specifically now in Mandera, uh, what we are seeing is a conflict between, between the Degodia and Gare. And as a country, we've been putting the emphasis that uh, we are one people, one nation, and work for the common good of the entire country. So when we see our people differing on uh, clan lines, sometimes we hear tribalism here and there is something backward, is something acceptable in modern Kenya. Kenya's interior minister, Joseph Olelenku, had this timely appeal to the fighting groups. But mine is really to urge uh, the communities fighting and their leaders that they have the capacity themselves uh, to bring this to an end. Because as much as we have so many police officers, as much as the security services are putting their best, If citizens do not collaborate and support the work of uh, security services, 
it is very difficult to bring peace. And therefore, the communities themselves must make the decision to say they must live together. So that's really the bottom line. Political critics in Kenya have accused Kenyan authorities of doing little to stop ethnic fighting that has been taking place in various parts of the country, especially in the northeastern part of the country. But on behalf of the government interior minister, Joseph Orolenko denies the accusation. I completely disagree that it's not be, been given the necessary attention. I can confirm to you that the amount of uh, policemen we deployed, we have uh, helicopters there, we have uh, fixed-wing uh, planes, we have so many senior officers, the regional uh, police uh, commander, the county commissioners, uh, are all there. So really to, to, to imply or to insinuate that this is not being, give, being given due attention is not right. Here we know what the conflict is. It is a clan versus a clan. That was Kenya's Interior Minister Joseph Olelenko. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shemanyula. Boko Haram militants have reportedly seized another town in Nigeria's far northeast after heavy fighting with government troops with experts warning the region is on the brink of a takeover. The claims were followed by an attack by the group on a nearby border crossing with Cameroon which 40, in which 40 Boko Haram members were said to have been killed. Nigeria's military denied that the northeastern town of Bama had fallen but residents and a local lawmaker claimed the insurgents had driven out the troops and taken control of a military base. For more on this, Selina Dobong spoke to South African-based independent analyst Dr. Matlutling Matlo. I think that quite often on the African continent we allow little seeds of discontent to grow and become increasingly more violent. And eventually you have situations where at great cost to human life, infrastructure, and delayed development, with, you know, Africa continues to lose. Boko Haram started as a small organization in the 1990s. There were calls for Sharia law in northern Nigeria, for dissatisfaction from some Muslims about poverty, and what they thought was the unequal sharing of the wealth of Nigeria. This is not a one country or a few states in Nigeria problem. It's a regional challenge. Numerous governments in Nigeria have said, ah, it's a little problem, we deal with it. Uh, It can't be dealt with solely by military means. You've got to look at various other strategies. The issue of the young ladies is no longer in the news. We must ask, you know, strong questions about these issues. What is the government of Nigeria doing? What is ECOWAS doing? What is the AU doing? Dr. Matlow, we've also gotten reports from Cameroon that they are fighting back Boko Haram and claiming um, in the process big casualties. Now, why is Nigeria unable to match these efforts? Does this really, or should we raise questions about Nigeria's ability to tackle the insurgency? I think it is important to remember that um, the Nigerian military has been, you know, accused, certainly the officer core of misgovernment, as well as sometimes officers taking monies that are meant for the lower ranks. The fact that some people who had been in U.S. peacekeeping troops around the world were not given their allowances when they came back, as well as 
the fact that some military people are not paid regularly, monies or funds which are supposed to be used and utilized for equipment and other things are mismanaged. So the, the Nigerian military, yes, has challenges. And we'll remember that in April and May, the United States and other countries offered to, to, to assist with drones and surveillance uh, as well as training. And the, the U.S., you know, has sent various training advisors who sit in, you know, the, some of the military establishments in in Abuja. And I think this is uh, certainly what we must ask. You know, what is exactly happening with regards to the Nigerian military? Uh, they are supposed to be seasoned armed forces having partaken in bringing about peace. And that, you know, certainly the Nigerian military, you know, has been in this UN mission since the 1960s on the African continent. It would not be surprising that the military so far has not lived up to what should be a reputation of the long-standing armed forces. What happened to those states that were giving technical assistance with the missing girls a few months ago? We're speaking here of, of the French, um, the British, and, and the Americans themselves. Are they not supposed to be extending some sort of assistance in what is currently happening there? You remember that Nigeria was very reluctant, certainly in the open, to admit that, in fact, even before these young ladies were taken in April, that, you know, there were, you know, Western military advisors and, uh, you know, training and other forms of assistance being given. Nigeria is a very proud African country in terms of what it believes it can do on its own. And um, so it did not want to be seen as dependent upon the West, to be dependent on other countries for dealing with this particular crisis. So, I mean, for a very long time, Nigeria in the media and openly were saying, we don't have Western assistance, we can deal with these issues ourselves. But many people had reported that prior to that, Western advisors were there anyway. You know, much as we in the developing world might talk about sovereignty, American satellites and Western satellites are flying over our airspaces all the time anyway. We know that Western military forces are in the in the in, in our oceans and seas, even in what are so called exclusive, you know, economic zones, the two hundred miles nautical miles zones. So really sometimes when African countries and developing countries speak about these things, some people just laugh in the background. And that was Dr. Matlutleng Matlau, an independent analyst, talking to Selina Dobong. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. In a country coming out of conflict, a solution to address root causes cannot be imposed from abroad, according to the new special representative of the UN Secretary General in South Sudan. Ellen Magreth Lodge, who has just taken up her post, said the job was impossible to turn down because the country's people had fought hard for their independence. The new head of the UN mission in South Sudan, UNMIS, explained to Gabrielle Shada that it is vital that all segments of South Sudanese society get involved in the peace process. Well, I think an external peacekeeping mission can assist 
the citizens and the political parties, civil society organization, you name it, in addressing the root causes. I have always said that in a country coming out of conflict, a fragile country, a solution to addressing the root causes cannot be imposed from abroad. If you really want to solve those issues, there has to be national ownership. So a peacekeeping mission can only assist in that process, and that is by pointing out how important it is to involve all segments of society, be it the churches, be it the civil society, be it the women's organization, not to forget it, youth organization, you name it national ownership for truly solving those underlying causes is crucial. Now you are coming in with a challenge where you have thousands of people taking refuge inside the protection of civilian sites in the country. And what do you see as a way out addressing this issue because there is a protection of civilians element in your mandate? Well, first and foremost, I think that you need peace in South Sudan. You need the fighting to stop. That will give the citizens the confidence to go back to their villages. Yes, you're right. There is about 100,000 in UN premises, but don't forget, there's probably more than a million internally displaced in mm -hmm. the whole country. So it's really a challenge that peace be established and the weapons are silent because that will give the citizens the confidence to go back to their homes, to their villages, to take care of their land and the other chores. And I certainly hope that that situation will come as soon as possible. In the meantime, we have to do what we can to protect them, to make sure that they as individual citizens feel safe and are fed and taken care of in a human way. What was your initial reaction when you learned that you have been appointed to be the next head of mission in South Sudan? That it was a huge challenge, a very difficult challenge, but also a challenge that it was impossible to say no to because the people of South Sudan has fought hard for their independence. And I strongly believe that each and every citizen anywhere in the world including in South Sudan, deserves a better future. I strongly believe that your sons and daughters should be able to focus on realizing their potential and not worry whether they would be killed tomorrow or whether they would go hungry to bed. So I said yes to the challenge, and with all the good colleagues in the mission, I hope we can assist in making just a small difference. You are coming in after a conflict has started and after the mission witnessed some sort of tension in relationship with the government. How do you think about going about this? Well, first of all, the conflict is in the hands of the regional organization ICAT in Addis Ababa, and I leave it safely in their hands. I will not uh, pass any judgment of the past. I will move forward. I have a mandate from the Security Council, and I will try with my knowledge about peacekeeping and development issues, including in Africa, to move forward and hopefully establish a constructive, mutually respective,
cooperation between not only the government but all the other interlocutors I'll have to deal with in South Sudan. I'll do my best and I hope by working together we can change the situation. This might be the first time people in South Sudan listen to you or see you. What will you say to them? I will say to them they're going to see a lot more of me. I have the intention to go all around the country and not only to stay here in Juba. I want to see how people are living in the various parts of the country. I want to see how the UN soldiers, the UN civilians, the humanitarians are working in order to assist the people of South Sudan. So they will see a lot more of me. That was Ellen Margaret Lodge, the new special representative of the UN Secretary General in South Sudan, talking to Gabriel Shader. It is exactly 8.28 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now going back in history to today in 2002, on the final day of speeches at the UN World Summit on Sustainable Development in Johannesburg, delegates from countries around the world jeered US Secretary of State Colin Powell as he delivered his speech in the closing part of the summit. For more on what happened on that day, Here's former SABC anchor Ike Pata. There was a less than cordial reception to United States Secretary of State Colin Powell's speech at today's plenary session as the World Summit on Sustainable Development draws to a close. Powell's pointed criticism of the Zimbabwean government's policies were met with sustained heckling from the audience. In one country in this region, Zimbabwe, the lack of respect for human rights and the rule of law has exacerbated these factors to push millions of people forward toward the brink of starvation. In the face of famine, in the face of famine, several governments in South Africa Order, please. His statements on the United States' commitment to reducing greenhouse gas emissions despite not ratifying the Kyoto Protocol did not fare much better. The United States is taking action to meet environmental challenges, including global climate change. We are committed. We are committed. We are committed. We are committed not just to rhetoric and to various goals. We are committed to a billion-dollar program to develop and deploy advanced technologies to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. And that was former U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell speaking at the U.N. World Summit on Sustainable Development in Johannesburg on this day in the year 2002. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
Good morning, Lesotho's Prime Minister Tom Tabane thanks the South African National Defence Force for helping when his country was plunged into crisis last weekend. The Somali government offers amnesty to Al-Shabaab fighters following an airstrike allegedly targeting the group's leader. And U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry meets with Palestinian negotiators for talks on future relations with Israel. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And civil society group Crisis in Zimbabwe Coalition says the Southern African Development Community, SADC, must continue to play a role in Zimbabwe, especially in demanding urgent democratic reforms as provided for in the country's new constitution that came into force in August last year. Zimbabwe assumed the position of chair in the Southern African Development Community during a summit in Victoria Falls last month. Members of the coalition and other civil society groups brief the media in Johannesburg, as Channel Africa's Ntlantla Matlang tells us. The crisis in Zimbabwe coalition says Zimbabwe's absolute failure to improve the human rights situation in the country is characterized by the continuing unlawful farm invasions, police assaults and harassment of journalists and opposition activists, and continued economic decline. They say factionalism and instability with the ruling ZANU-PF party threatens national security given the involvement of security forces in political issues regarding succession to President Robert Mugabe in the party and in government. More from Dewa Mavinga, chairperson of the coalition. SADC needs to closely monitor developments across the region, particularly in those areas that are hotspots, like Zimbabwe, where there are serious human rights issues and serious instability within the ruling partisan PF, which could threaten the stability of Zimbabwe in the near future as well as of the region. If you look at Lesotho, the challenge has been that there has been a failure to act proactively. So now we have SADC reacting to an attempted military coup. What we need is for SADC to be prepared and to prevent problems from opening up into crisis situations. So this is why SADC should have a close monitoring position on Zimbabwe. With regards to Swaziland, the coalition says SADC leaders should press for the immediate and unconditional release from prison of Swaziland human rights defenders Tulani Maseko and Begi Makubu and other political prisoners. Dewa Mavinga says Swaziland must be suspended from SADC with immediate effect until there's a restoration of democracy, respect for human rights and rule of law in that country. Swaziland's very poor scorecard on human rights, democracy and respect for the rule of law makes it a very good candidate for suspension from SADC, particularly its uh, intolerance of uh, opposite political parties, uh, the arrest of political prisoners who uh, include the Podemo president, Mario Masuku and uh, Tulani Khamini and others. So Swaziland is in decline in terms of human rights respect, so it needs to be put out to sort out its house in order. Peggy Lamini is from the Swaziland Youth Congress. He says the country is controlled by the monarchy. When you look at the economy, it's controlled by the monarchy. Through TB and Tisuga uh, And when you also look at the judiciary, it's controlled by the monarchy. Because uh, the chief justice is appointed by the king. Uh, through the Judicial Service Commission, which is also appointed by the king. When you look at the executive, it is controlled by him. He solely appoints the prime minister and the ministers. He also controls the legislature. So actually in Swaziland, everything is under the control of the king. 
in total disregard of the people. The activists have also called on Sadiq leaders to demonstrate commitment to the rule of law and respect for human rights by immediately resuscitating the Sadiq tribunal with a clear legal framework that will ensure individual access for all Sadiq citizens with human rights complaints and mechanisms for enforcement and compliance by all member states. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Glantla Matlangu in Johannesburg. The United States says it is conceivable that a UN Security Council resolution in support of a permanent ceasefire in Gaza could play a positive role, but that negotiations are ongoing. The country's ambassador was addressing the UN press Core, having assumed the presidency of the council for the month of September. Ambassador Samantha Power also pushed back at Palestinian calls for the Security Council to support a three-year term frame for the end to Israel Israeli occupation. Shown Bryce Peace reports. Council has for weeks been negotiating the terms of a possible resolution that would add weight to negotiations being mediated by Egypt. The United States UN envoy Samantha Power was tentative in approaching the subject. We've been uh, engaged for some time uh, within the council on a number of ideas about how uh, the council might uh, potentially contribute uh, to the effort to secure a sustainable uh, ceasefire. Those discussions are uh, uh, continuing and the United States is of the view that a council product could conceivably uh, play a positive role uh, in supporting a durable uh, solution. Um, And as you indicated, those discussions are underway. Um, But again, our emphasis is going to be on what the council can do that will be additive and seen as additive uh, by the parties on on the ground, given that there's uh, a calm of sorts that we uh, very much seek to preserve. Earlier this week in the same room, senior Palestinian politician Hanan Ashrawi indicated a high level of frustration with U.S.-mediated peace talks which collapsed earlier this year and articulated a position that the PLO would seek U.S. support in setting a three-year deadline for ending Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories, including through a resolution in the Security Council. Support for such a resolution was put to the U.S. ambassador. I think our position on uh, how to bring about... uh, peace in the Middle East is relatively well known. We believe that negotiations are uh, the way in which uh, uh, a two-state solution can be uh, achieved, must be achieved. We don't think there are shortcuts uh, or unilateral measures that can be taken at the United Nations or, or anyplace else that will bring about um, the, the outcome uh, that Um, the Palestinian people uh, most seek. Power did acknowledge that Israel's expanded settlement activity was contrary to the Jewish state's goal of achieving a two-state solution. But on a greater role for the UN Security Council, she remained unconvinced. To secure uh, a permanent peace, Israel has to be a part of that uh, negotiation just as as a practical matter. So... Uh, to think that you can come to the to New York uh, and uh, secure what needs to be worked out on the ground is 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 not realistic, and in fact is likely to have uh, very counterproductive uh, effects uh, on you know whether on the sustainable ceasefire that we seek for what has just just been negotiated, 
you don't want to do anything that, inter that interferes with that or risks that. And uh, ultimately, in order, again, to secure uh, uh, the desired outcome, the parties are going to have to come together and uh, it is going to have to be negotiated with the government of Israel. There is no clear indication as to when either a resolution in support of a permanent ceasefire in Gaza or in support of a three-year deadline for the occupation would be put to a vote in the Security Council. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. Oxfam International has released a report that warns African governments against the mega public-private partnerships for agriculture that they are involved in. The report highlights that these mega partnerships are slowly becoming a conduit for land rush in Africa, unfairness and majorly might end up benefiting only the few rich, rich people living the vast majority of African dependence on agriculture even poorer. Coletta Wanjohi reports from Addis Ababa. The report by Oxfam is titled Moral Hazards and features on a research done on the mega public-private partnerships in African agriculture. The research was done in three countries that have embraced these international initiatives, namely Tanzania, Malawi and Burkina Faso. According to the report, these mega international agriculture projects, though with the mission of improving agriculture development in Africa, have proven risky and the people who are suffering these hurdles are the poorest and most vulnerable Africans in the continent. The report highlights that government policies and almost $1.6 billion in aid money to support large partnerships with private sector are risking African land rights and worsening inequality and damaging the environment. Robin Willoughby, the policy advisor at Oxfam Britain and the researcher behind the report, says that African governments need to weigh in early on the policies that these international initiatives come with in order to ensure that its population harnesses as much as possible. I think that the intention from governments is, is well-meaning on, on the whole. I think that governments are looking for new ways to mobilise investment in the sector and they're looking for quick returns. So we've got the problem with youth unemployment, for example, in, in rural areas. And I think it's, it's due to a, gen, a genuine desire from African governments to try and mobilise resources quickly into the agriculture sector. And it offers the allure of sort of increased technology, increased capital uh, and foreign exchange reserves, which, which all African governments are, are really keen to have. So I think it's well-meaning. But I would say that the African governments should probably be a little bit more cautious about the risks involved and look to their own internal markets first and foremost, which is more likely to have a benefit for poverty and food security. In Africa, these mega initiatives include G8's new alliance for food security and nutrition, which has brought in seed companies and other companies that seek to change the traditional system of agriculture that Africa is used to, like the involvement of seed system. Robin says that the dangers that are now arising include a land rush in Africa. These international organizations which have capital most often larger than the GDP of the African countries where they operate are being given land by African countries at a throwaway price. In the long run, the land rights of citizens in the continent are not respected and smallholder farmers are automatically being pushed out of the production. Um, in relation to your question around is damage done, I would say no, actually. These are in the early stages. Um, for example, the, the mega PPP in, in Tanzania, for example, there's, they're planning around 20 plantation schemes, I think, over, over a large expanse uh, of land. And so far, there are around, there's actually two. So we're very much in the early stages of these, and I think there is room to A, make them better and make them more accountable, 
make them better for lower risk for smallholders, but also for us to advocate that there are actually alternative models of investment out there which might be higher benefit and lower risk for, for the poor in particular. As over 1,000 participants continue to discuss agriculture under one such mega initiative, which is the Africa Green Revolution Forum in Ethiopia, it is upon the continent to weigh in on the benefits that come with policies that these mega initiatives bring, and the African companies should tailor these policies to only those that benefit Africa. Africa needs to be the decision maker in such mega public-private partnerships if it is to indeed realize any agriculture growth and satisfaction of its people. Koleton Johi, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. It is exactly 8.43 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now going back in time to the year 1939, South Africa and Canada declare war on Germany. That was today in history in 1939. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lihoko. Fresh produce exporters and farmers will earn less in coming months as new taxes on Kenyan exports to Europe are affected starting next month, making them uncompetitive. According to the Fresh Produce Exporters Association of Kenya, the delay to seal a new economic partnership agreement between the European Union and the rest of the East African community has left little room for reprieve. The association says the margins for farmers and exporters are expected to decline in the meantime. Kenya is seen as the most vulnerable among the East African community and it's considered a developing country while the other four are categorized as low-income economies. The Kruger National Park's Litaba Camp in South Africa's Limpopo province is a half of activity today. This is where Limpopo Tourism Minister Sia Parosakwati will launch the 4 times 4 bush-to-beach escarpment route later today. The route stretches from the northern part of the Drakensberg Mountains in the Sekukune area to Shai in the Gaza province of Mozambique. The route also cuts across the Great Limpopo Transfrontier Park between the two countries. Witness Tiwa reports. Today's launch of the 4x4 Bush to Beach escarpment route has been preceded by a four-day-long tour from the Drakensberg Mountains to Shai in Mozambique. The route cut across a number of tourism destinations that include the Khalamezi, Leeds, Dorp and the Kruger National Park to the Park National du Limpopo, a national park in Mozambique. MECSA Paroskwati says the route is an addition to the already existing tourism products found in the Greater Limpopo Transfrontier Park between the two countries, witnessed Tiva ECBC News Litaba Camp in the Kruger National Park. Africa's energy industry could boom in the coming years with Mozambique and Tanzania set to emerge as new frontiers if they can attract enough badly needed investment. This is according to a report by PricewaterhouseCoopers. 
Six of the top ten global discoveries were made in Africa last year, with more than 500 companies now exploring across the continent. Large gas finds in Mozambique and Tanzania would make the world take note of East Africa as an emerging player in the global industry. The boom has brought investment opportunities despite the lingering challenges of the corruption, lack of infrastructure and regulation. Ukraine is to buy 1 million tons of coal from South Africa because the military conflict in the Donbas region has disrupted domestic coal production. Pro-Russian separatists are battling Kiev's forces in eastern Ukraine, which is home to much of the country's heavy industry and coal mines and accounts for about 18% of the economy's output. South Africa is dependent on coal to keep the country's lights on. In March, South Africa's power utility ESCOM imposed rolling blackouts for the first time since 2008. The number of tourists coming from different countries into Egypt has fallen back by 20.5% to reach 786,000 tourists in June this year, compared to 989,000 tourists in June last year. The Central Agency of Public Mobilization and Statistics says the number of tourists during the month of 2010 amounted to 1.29 tourists. Tourists from Eastern Europe spend 4.0.2% of the total number of nights, followed by Western Europeans with 29.5% of nights, and the Middle East tourists with 21.2%. Indicators at the hour, the US dollar, 1070 South African rands, 880 Botswana Pula, 603 Zambia, 060 Britain, 075 Europa, Euro. Gold one two seven two dollars, platinum one four zero nine dollars an ounce. Brand crude one oh two two five cents a barrel. Economic updates. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update, this hour we're kicking off with football news. Bafana Bafana have touched down in Sudan after a seven-hour flight where the weather temperature is 35 degrees Celsius. Team doctor Tulani Nguenya says they've decided not to train immediately to help the players recover properly. Bafana take on Sudan in the Morocco 2015 Africa Cup of Nations first leg qualifier on Friday. Team doctor Tulani Nguenya explains. We understand that it's quite it's high. Right now, we're gonna start. We've 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 um, we've traveled for more than uh, eight hours, so we're not gonna train. We're gonna have a pool session just for us to allow blood circulation, more blood circulation to the players, and then they're gonna rest. We're gonna start training tomorrow. Now, one of the other things that we can or that we're gonna do is to try and rehydrate as possible because I understand we cannot change the temperature here. We're gonna rehydrate as possible and then we're gonna make sure that in between the training session, every now and then we're gonna have a rehydration session whereby they drink water so that they don't uh, get dehydrated. Head coach Ephraim Sheikh Mashaba says some of the players who have been left behind like George Libisi and Jamlan Shongwe could have been part but they don't have passports. And then uh, some other players, we didn't get their visas. No, not visas. They don't have passports. They don't have passports. That's, that, that's what happened. 
Lebisi doesn't have a passport, yeah. And then Chabu uh, from Vets, uh, Shongwe. And the, yeah, and the other players, it's the group that we couldn't include in the group. We'll see them when we come back. Springboks did not lose to the Wallabies last year with their last defeat coming two years ago. Coincidentally, at the same Patterson Stadium, they will be playing at the, on Saturday in Perth. But coach Henneke Meyer is adamant that the Wallabies are in a better place than his Springbok team. Meyer has lamented the number of injuries that have struck him and his team and the lack of continuity, but remains hopeful that his side will put in a good performance. I think they're a total different team. I think there's... In a sense, we were they, where they were last year, that's where we were. They had a lot of injuries last year, couldn't get going, new coaching staff, and, uh, you know, every test nowadays is a, is a battle. So it can go either way. So I thought they were really under pressure of the injuries. Um, if you look at their run lately, just before the New Zealand game, they had a brilliant run, I think eight or nine games on the trot. And uh, they're finding combinations now, and they've always had brilliant backs, but now their forwards is coming to the party as well. And if you, if you look at the team, I know too good there's a lot of injuries, but uh, all around there's not a lot of injuries, so uh, they've got continuity. I know they had one bad game, but that doesn't make them a bad team. They will definitely be up for it, and uh, we know it's a tough game. We, on the other hand, struggle to find continuity, um, a lot of injuries, but that's not an excuse. We've been training well this week. I'm really excited to, to see the guys go, and I think it's going to be exciting, and it's going to be open-running rugby. Open On to tennis news, Serena Williams roared back from an early deficit to defeat Flavia Pineta 6-3, 6-2 and book a U.S. Open semi-final clash with Ekaterina Makarova. Williams, the two-time defending champion who has claimed five of her 17 Grand Slam singles titles at Flushing Meadows, was playing in her first major quarterfinal of 2014. She stretched a perfect record against Panetta to 6-love, denying the Italian's bid to match her best Grand Slam performance, a semi-final run in New York last year. On to swimming news. South African swimmers are back in the country after competing in the FINA World Cup Series in Doha and Dubai. Swimming sensation Charles Leclerc continued with his great form and is currently leading the World Cup point standings after the Dubai meet. The overall top scorer in the men's and women's section at the end of the series will win 100,000 US dollars. South Africa head coach Graham Hill says he's happy with the swimmer's current form. I think we had a pretty good uh, two legs of the of the start of the FINA Cup. You know, it's it's the start of the of the World Cup series, and uh, obviously, it's all leading towards our World Cup championship short course at the end of the year, back in Doha in December. So. You know, we, we go through these uh, legs now. There's five to go. We've, we've got Hong Kong and Russia coming up at the end of the month. And then at the end of November, we've got, um, uh, sorry, the end of uh, October, we've got uh, three legs going, Beijing, uh, Tokyo, and then Singapore. So And then all leading up to the first weekend of, of December, back in Doha for the final uh, competition of the year, the World Short Course Championship. So, so they 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 in great position where they are now swimming really well and uh and and building towards that end of the year competition the south african team in a is, is in a challenging position after first round action in the ongoing esperito santo trophy at the world amateur team championships wrapped up in a at the karuzawa 72 is golf club in japan michaela fletcher and Karagorele combined for an opening two under par 142 at the Oshitate course. 
to claim a share of seventh alongside Mexico, Spain and the United States of America. National coach Vel Holland is delighted with the team's performance. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Community leaders condemn ethnic killings in northern Kenya. And AU official says Africa is extremely vulnerable to terrorism. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutu Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us and follow us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa is Flavor with a song titled Noa Baby. Corner, corner, baby. And I go tell my mama. And I go tell my papa. And I go tell and say, you be waka waka, baby. You be chuku chuku, baby. Yeah. Bum, bum. Yeah. Bum, bum. Yeah. Bum, bum.